This is Catholic Worker Community Radio. A lot of young people come to us. It's a pacifist anarchist movement. And they come to us to learn more about this point of view of beginning a change from the bottom up rather than from the top down. I believe that the human experiment, experience, is basically a comedy and not a tragedy in the classic sense. And that we can go forward. And that we will go forward. It's because there were people like Dorothy Day who can give you a model, a model of action. Dorothy Day was born on the 8th of November, 1897, on Pineapple Street near the Brooklyn Bridge. She was the third of five siblings. Their father was a newspaper man, and his children were all journalists, except for Dorothy's younger sister. The Day children were born to a woman named Grace, who told wonderful biographic stories to her children. When Dorothy was six years old, her family moved to the San Francisco Bay Area of California. The famous April 18th earthquake disrupted their lives and destroyed Mr. Day's workplace, so the family moved to Chicago. As a teenager, Dorothy was inspired by writers such as Jack London, Upton Sinclair, and Peter Kropotkin. Kropotkin's vision of an anarchistic social order based on cooperation rather than competition was important to Dorothy for the rest of her life. As a journalist in the Bohemian Greenwich Village of the 1920s, Dorothy was a radical social reformer seeking to bring justice to the human community. Eventually, Dorothy underwent a revolution of the heart and converted to Catholicism. She and others in the Catholic Worker Movement have a prophetic voice in our modern American empire. And here are some stories to enlighten us to the intimate life of this powerful public person. The first time I met Dorothy was at the Catholic Worker in New York in the late 50s. And we went down to supper with her. Bernie Gilgan is a Catholic priest. And the supper that night was a bowl of rice with a fish head. The eye, it seemed to me and all, on the plate. Oh, I couldn't eat a thing. But I was ashamed to be seen not eating. So I fooled around a little bit with the rice and the bread. Ah, oh, but it was, uh, was, was tough then. And uh, it's a harsh and dreadful thing, you know. <laughs> but as Jeanette says... When she went down to try out the worker in New York, and <laughs> she stayed for a couple of weeks, and the bugs, here, there, and everywhere, she knew she couldn't take the bugs. So she came home, and uh, when she thought about it, she said, uh, I had a vision of the judgment and uh, God asked me, why didn't you go to the Catholic worker when I called you? She said, I'd be ashamed to say I was afraid of the bugs. Oh, I love her. So she went back to the Catholic worker. And then when she got back, Dorothy said, we don't have room for you. And Jeanette said to herself, I got news for you. I'm staying. Rosalie Regal conducted these interviews. I'm Rosalie Regal. After publishing my first oral history, um, Voices from the Catholic Worker, I started a Catholic Worker house of my own with two colleagues, Sister Leona Sullivan and Janine Collier. 
recording the Dorothy stories um, has made me feel connected with the tradition, with the history of the movement, with so many of the pioneers, because luckily I was able to interview many people who were with Dorothy in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Some of these have since passed on. So the Dorothy stories you're going to be hearing are particularly valuable for the light they shed on the early years of the movement. It was the French Catholic peasant philosopher Peter Morin who inspired her and joined her in starting the Catholic Worker newspaper. On May Day in 1933, the Catholic Worker paper focused on human rights and labor issues as interpreted by the social justice values inherent in Catholic social teaching. Dorothy's articles and Peter Morin's easy essays, simple catchy poems, were the kinds of writings that call people to live in justice and peace, just like the message Jesus Christ spoke to his generation. Rosemary Lynch is a Franciscan sister stationed in Las Vegas, Nevada. I had a brother who was a Franciscan priest and who was also a good friend of Father Hugo. Mm. And Dorothy loved my brother very much because he was working in a very poor Mexican neighborhood in Los Angeles and was always on the street with the people. And he also worked with the farm workers. You know, Dorothy was, was in that. Well, then I was living in Rome, and she came to Rome during the Vatican Council, you know, for the fast, and I had a lot of contact with all of those people during the Vatican Council. And already in the 60s, this mother house in Denver, Mary Crest, had begun to take in homeless people. And she loved to go there, and she loved those sisters very much because they were, you know, really mm -hmm. doing what she considered sisters should be doing. They took the people into their house. Bernie Gilgun. There were two sisters, Margaret and Elizabeth. Elizabeth went on retreat in the Depression in the middle 30s at the Cynical in Boston, and she was heartsick over the poverty, the bread lines that she saw on her way to the Cynical in Boston. And uh, she spoke to a nun at the Cynical about how depressed and downhearted she was. What are we going to do about this situation? All these poor men without work and their families going hungry. The nun said, I don't know what to do. But she says, there's a handful of people downtown that say no. They know. They call themselves Catholic workers. And they have, at this address, this going on. Elizabeth went down, and she was so put off by the dirt of the place, by the bugs, by the, the Catholic worker situation in Boston at that time, that she knew that wasn't her vocation. But she went home to her sister Margaret, who at that time, I think, had her MD in pediatrics. But later on, she went into another specialty, and then she went into a third specialty, psychiatry, all zeroing in on children. And uh, Elizabeth said, you know, there's something can be done about this, and you ought to do it. And she inspired Margaret to go to the Catholic worker in Boston, and then to start the Worcester House, and then to marry John McGee from the Boston House, and work together on the Upton Farm that brought vegetables to both the Worcester House and the Boston House. How it spreads, how it spreads. Father Louis Vitale is a Franciscan priest. When I went to New York, I remember I had an appointment to meet with her on a, a given, I believe it was a Saturday morning, and I thought, 
Well, I can't believe this. This has been going a lot longer, and Dorothy Day is so well known. Why aren't they feeding thousands? And why they don't even have an electric dishwasher, you know, <laughs> and all of that, you know. So I didn't know anything about personalism, and, you know, all of that sort of thing. So I just remember being struck with some of those things. So Dorothy came in. Um, her first question to me, she said, oh, welcome. And then her first question to me is, did you help with the house chores? <laughs> well, I had been standing around waiting for her and, you know, having nothing to do and being kind of a little neurotic myself. People were cleaning up, so, oh, can I help? And I ended up, there's a little bathroom right there by the dining room where they eat. And I, you know, I cleaned the bathroom. And I said, oh, thank God. I said, well, you know, you have these images of people being, you know, really, you know, cast in plaster. And she said to me, she said, you know, she said, the Catholic workers like a sieve. Haven't you noticed everybody passes through us? You know, they don't really stick, but they pass through. And she used that imagery that it's like a sieve. Everyone passes through here and they pick up much of what we are and then they move on with it. So there's a little sadness that they don't, yes, you know, stay and mine. become disciples. Yes, yes, yes. Dorothy's good friend Marge Hughes was the mother of Joanna Hughes Turner. Who remembers living as a child in the Catholic worker movement? Dorothy and my mother had a special relationship. It went back and forth. My mother came to the worker because she knew about it and was interested in it. She came at a very young age and then came back after college and so forth. She came as a volunteer, as a believer, and proceeded to act accordingly. Um, and she acted at times as Dorothy's secretary or whatever, and she helped Dorothy along those lines. Um, and at other times later on, she was in charge of Catholic worker farms. But there were also times in our lives when my mother came back for refuge. And in those times, um, she was certainly unbelievably kind to us and gave us a wonderful home in, in a lot of ways. But there was that other side, that feeling that you're a client, it's not your own home, and, and your parent is not in charge of that home. And that is very distressing to a young, to a child, mm -hmm. to know that the parent is has that child status with another adult. And it's not a question of ownership of the premises, but who controls. But the main thing was that I saw Dorothy suddenly as, I knew she was in charge of all these adults and could say who does what and when and even whether or not they could stay there. And that was not a very happy revelation. But I saw a process that wasn't right. You know, I saw it clearly in terms of adults, not as, as this structure, that something was wrong with the structure. I hadn't even known it was a structure. It's not a nice Dorothy story, but it made me realize something about the nature of that particular community. And in a way, the fact that Dorothy was a benevolent dictator made the thing work in a lot of ways where other, gave it a certain charm and a magic and an all-inclusiveness that I think other communities could never achieve. Mm -hmm. You know, she had her stamp on it, and that's the way it was going to be, for good or for ill. Michael Harank lived with Dorothy and other Catholic workers in the 1970s in New York City. You know, of course, every uh, mother-daughter have their own issues, you know, to deal with, you know, at the end of life, uh, as every father and son does. And I think there was some, uh, you know, um, at times, you know, there was, uh, uh, Dorothy at times felt guilty about certain things that happened, you know, in, in Tamar's life. But, you know, Tamar would say, you know, I just, you know, that's the past and we can go on and, you know, we're here and that's the most important thing, you know. And I think, like I said, the most comforting thing to Dorothy, I mean, Dorothy used to talk about, you know, when my mother died, 
she was very clear about that. I, I wanted to be with my mother when she died, and I got that wish. I mean, she writes about that, and she spoke about that. And I said, well, I hope when the time comes that, you know, Tamar and your family and friends will be, be able to be with you. And Tamar was there, you know. Uh, I mean, she had a heart attack because she was in the bathroom, and she had a heart attack and sort of, you know, didn't make it to the bed, but I was there. I mean, Frank came down, and by that time, you know, a couple of people had moved her to the bed, but she was, she had died um, at that point. But, um, but she was there, um, and she did stay, you know, for, she would stay a week at a time and be with her, and Dorothy delighted in it, you know. I mean, it was so important, and she got her prayer. She got her wish. I mean, just as she was with her mother, uh, Tamar was with her in, in the end. And then the whole idea of being close to the soil, not just uh, in cities, nothing but asphalt and stone and high rises and ugliness on all sides, the ugliness of people's way of life. Dorothy Day. It was a radical movement, a Catholic worker movement. That was the word that Peter Moran liked when it came to describing it. The Catholic Worker Movement. He spoke of it always as a radical movement and uh, used the word radical in the sense that you get down to the roots of things. But he talked about uh, man's need to get closer to his roots, <coughs> to get back. And so these are the things he stressed. Michael Harang. She loved to travel uh, for various reasons, uh, doing spreading the, the news of the Catholic worker movement, encouraging people, traveling to, to Russia or India or Cuba or other places. I mean, curiosity. The, she had an immense curiosity. Her geography, the geography, was a geography of the heart, and I don't think she ever stopped traveling in those regions. Chuck Mathai. You were more likely to find her here and there across the country than ladling soup. And, and on First Street, you know. I mean, the life of the road is a, is, uh, is a vocation unto itself. Um, and when you travel as much as Dorothy did, or as much as I have through most of my adult life, you really have to think of it as a vocation or a lifestyle, not a trip. If you're on a trip, you expect to come home. But if you travel this much, you'll never have an ordinary home life. You know, now she was blessed with with a community that provided her you know a stable home and a changing but still you know in a larger sense consistent group of friends and companions with which to share it over many years but it's still not an ordinary home life um, it's not without reason that she called her book the long loneliness and I'm sure that loneliness was experienced in, and in some cases, sometimes probably occasioned by her life on the road, as well as by any number of other, you know, factors in, in her life. I didn't know Dorothy when she was active and vigorous and traveling. Um, I knew Dorothy, the Dorothy who developed into, uh, you know, a contemplative hermit who had a little room uh, on 3rd Street, on 2nd Avenue, seven doors down from the Hells Angels. Michael Harank. So many of the images, especially the icons of Dorothy's face, are so stern and harsh, you know. And uh, she, she could be very, very playful, and she could giggle. I mean, sometimes she had this wonderful giggle, you know, that 
she would rub her the side of her temple all the time. We, when she did that, you knew that she was either thinking of something clever to say or she was thinking think seriously. Um, I once um, was reading at the time uh, some of the journals of Kierkegaard, and I came across uh, this wonderful quote um, from his journal um, uh, about uh, Kierkegaard said, the most horrible thing about humans is that they forget. The most wonderful thing about God is that God forgets. And it really struck me, and as soon as I read it, I said, oh, I must share this with Dorothy. And so that, it was either that night or the next morning, whenever the next time I delivered her food or medicine. I said, Dorothy, you will love this quote from Kierkegaard. And I read it to her. And I said, just think, you're becoming more like God in your oh. forgetfulness. And she said, oh, Michael, she was very pleased to, to get it. And she said, I must write that down right now in my diary, or else I'll forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, a, it was a wonderful moment, because it was a way in which she could graciously um, deal with, you know, a very difficult thing. Um, here was a woman who had a very sharp mind. Um, and, you know, it was, it's, the memory components of her, her mind were, uh, were being lost, uh, the short-term memory. The long-term memory, I'm not so sure. Um, so I had just burned my draft cards, and that, of course, was enough to awaken Dorothy's maternal instincts. So her immediate <laughs> response was, well, you're one of ours, you know, one of us, you know, part of our family. So she could be very warm and very, in some ways, very accessible and very maternal in the ways that she's described, also a solitary figure and a public figure. Chuck Mathai tells us about life at the Tivoli Catholic Worker Farm. The living room at Tivoli was a very large room. Um, and in one far corner, there was a good-sized table. And we would put clothing donations when they were brought to the farm over on that table. And the pile would grow. and People and residents would take whatever they needed, and when the pile grew to an unmanageable height, then it would, the clothes would be sent to the city, or if they didn't need them, they'd be sent to the Salvation Army or sent wherever clothes would be sent. But you know, there was always a pile of old clothes there. And one day, I was uh, standing at the door between the living room and the dining room, which was at the opposite end of the living room from that uh, table of clothes. And I was just kind of idly standing in the doorway, uh, paying attention to nothing in particular. And suddenly, Dorothy's voice comes from behind me, and she says, oh my goodness, stop him, stop him. And I thought, my goodness, what's happening? I, it seemed like a very quiet moment in the life of the house. There was nothing that I could see was happening, and Dorothy was obviously distressed about something. I turned around and I said, what's the matter, Dorothy? I hadn't even realized she was walking up behind me. She said. There he is. Look at him. Look at him. Stop him. Do something. And I said, who are you talking about? She, and what was this guy? I'll have to get the name. I can't remember the man's name, but let's call him Duncan, but I don't think that was it. But anyway, she said, it's Duncan. He's in those clothes. Look at him over there. He's in those clothes. Get him out of those clothes. This guy was um, 
you know, one of the longtime residents or guests at the house. Most of the time he was pretty quiet and kept to himself. Once or twice a year he'd lose it and uh, become quite difficult and sometimes nearly homicidal. So anyway, he was a man who, for the most part, was, was quiet and somewhat withdrawn and every so often, you know, hell on wheels. But this was one of his relatively quiet periods. Um, and he was simply, you know, sorting through this large pile of clothes and occasionally pulling out an item and trying it on. But he was a very heavy-set person, and very few of the clo clothing items would have fit him. Um, so Dorothy says, get him out of those clothes, do something. And I said, Dorothy, there's no real problem. He can't even fit into most of those clothes. He won't take very much from that pile. He won't do any harm. He can't even fit in most of those clothes. She said, that's not the point. I don't care if he takes all of them. And I said, well, then what's the problem? She said, he has lice. I know he has lice. He always has lice. He'll get lice in those clothes. They'll spread. We'll all have lice. I can't stand it. I just got rid of them last week. I don't want them again. Not so soon. So I thought, all right, I'll do something. And before I could move, she said, Oh, it reminds me of that time in 1936. And this is so typical of Dorothy that it would sort of launch into a story, you know. So she actually undercut my ability to follow her orders and deal with the problem because I had to listen to her story. And she goes on and she says, I was invited to address this august gathering of theologians. She said, all the Catholic luminaries, the intellectual luminaries of the day were there. So-and-so was there and so-and-so was there and the editor of this journal and the editor of that one and... And at the end of my little talk, my humble little presentation, she said, Jacques Maritain looked at me and he said, Ah, Dorothy, you're so serene. She said, and just at that moment, I felt this louse crawling across my bosom and I thought to myself, if you only knew the truth. <laughs> <laughs> it was so typical of Dorothy, you know, it was so absolutely <laughs> realistic with, you know, practical and you know, with the full range of emotions but a sense of humor at the same time. But I remember um, one of the uh, peacemaker orientation programs that took place at Tivoli. And once again, Dorothy had been scheduled to come and, and speak to that group. I came first in 66 for that two-week session, and I left after that. Peacemakers had no formal organizational structure. It was not a, an organization in traditional terms. Um, Dorothy said it was her favorite peace group because it was so much like the Catholic worker in its amorphous qualities and its personalist orientation. But there would be you know, a, a meeting in which people might raise project ideas and, and join forces for those projects. And at the, at the business meeting following that, uh, conference in 66 or that orientation program, a decision had been made to um, to organize a conference on non-cooperation with the draft, um, which turned out to be the first conference on, on conscription or draft resistance since 1948 when the draft had been reimposed after World War II. Um, and so I came back to Tivoli in the fall and spent a block of time there picked some apples and grapes in nearby farms to, to uh, get some pocket change and worked with some of the um, young Catholic worker draft resistors to
to help in the organizing of this uh, conference, which was held in New York in October of 66. So the Catholic Worker was, in many ways, a kind of a spiritual home for, for many years. And I you know, guess I've always said that if I was given five minutes to choose somewhere to go and spend the rest of my life, I'd just pack up and head for the Worker, with all the trepidation that such a decision <laughs> deserves, but, you know, but without any doubts at the same time. So. Michael Harank. You know, Mother Teresa sort of liked coming to Mary House because none of the women really knew or cared who she was, really. Um, you know, um, and so she had a kind of anonymity there. You know, she could, you know, the throngs of crowds weren't, you know, milling around her, so she could have a cup of tea in peace and enjoy, you know, being there. She only came twice that I know of during the time that I was there, which was the three years. But there was a wonderful story, you know, um, of Lena, who lived in the hallway uh, of, the, of the foyer of Mary House on the church pew. And Eileen, um, after they had finished their visit, Eileen Aiken had asked me to give Mother Teresa a tour of the house. And so I said, fine. And so Lena was right there. And I said, well, let's begin here. I said, Lena, this, Mother Teresa, this is Lena. And Lena looked up from her perch on the bench and said, hi, who are you? And Mother Teresa said, I'm Mother Teresa from Calcutta. And she said, oh. She said, in this very thick Brooklyn lispy voice, oh, she said, how did you get here? On roller skates? <laughs> and Mother Teresa actually flapped her sari. It was the only time I ever saw her get funny. She flapped her sari and she said, no, I flew. <laughs> And for Lena, that was quite believable. Um, and so Lena, you know, gave her like a, a kind of inquiring stare um, because she was dressed so oddly. And Lena loved materials because she used to sew things together. So I think she was really looking at, you know, the sari and sort of seeing what she could do with that, you know, uh, in her little sewing expeditions. And Lena said, well, now that you're here, have you got a cigarette for me? And I thought, how wonderful. Nobody in the world would ask Mother Teresa for a cigarette. And Mother Teresa said, I'm very sorry, I do not smoke. And she bowed. And Lena said, well, then what the hell good are you? Ada Bethune was a Catholic worker artist. When I was a kid, I wanted to be like her, and she smoked like a chimney. Moreover, the thing that was a little bit, you know, a little illogical, I was talking about holy poverty. And having been converted when I was 12, and then in 1926, I had also gone to see the Russian movies, the Russian communist movies, that were being played at the Eighth Street Playhouse. For that you also need, plus you needed 25 cents to go to the movie. So I had to be very sharp in my shopping. <laughs> yeah. then, uh, she wanted to, to have a house in Harlem, and so she could get rid of Peter, I guess, I don't know. But she put Peter in charge of that house in Harlem. And then, and I was to go there every Wednesday also and teach the kids to draw. You know, I had a little drawing class for kids. Mm -hmm. So I had, I had a good time there. 
she quit smoking, thanks to the Father Roy. Father Roy yes. I don't know what he said or did to her, but she realized that it was an addiction, and she was too proud to be, you know, too proud in the right sense to be victimized by an addiction. Dorothy always was so very happy when Joe was around. Um, there was Joe, and there, you know, there were other people that would come. Um, you know, the Cornells would come down, and she loved, you know, Tom and Monica. If I'd never met Dorothy. Thomas Cornell. I would never have met a lot of other people. Thomas Merton. A.J. Musty, I would never have met Musty. If Musty was the only person that I had ever known of any fame, I would think of that as an enormous privilege. He's the guy who was the strike leader, not the strike support leader, but the strike leader in 1919 at Lawrence. Uh, he was the guy who was the first, uh, on the first broadcast of, uh, of the American town meeting of the air, holding up the uh, Marxist argument who became then America's number one pacifist, who influenced Martin King so very, very deeply, gave Martin King his lieutenant, Bayard Rostin. Knowing all these people, you see, was, I knew them because of Dorothy. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, you know, a, a contact with the most important currents, the really most important currents. The Republicans and Democrats think they're the important currents. No, they're not. We know better than that, don't we? <laughs> Dorothy had the important current. This was the most important thing in the universe. And she put me in contact with that. She is an instrument in God's plan, yeah. There's no doubt about it. She's not going to become just, you know, one of those interesting people in an eccentric movement that, uh, that was very groovy at the time. And it gave people who are, you know, gave people a home for maybe a generation or two later. But there was something real going on here about this woman. That she had affected people very deeply in a manner that is going to have resonance for a long time. Nina Pulsine Moore. I personally think she was in love with love. I, I think she was a very romantic person. She just m mirrored this love of Christ to such a profound degree that it it, it was her it became her her nature. It, it um, tremendous uh, burning within her this thirst for justice and this this love this tremendous love tr tremendous. I, I think that that was it. I, and I, I think the rest of us are kind of, uh, well, we maybe we put down a Venetian blind or yeah, something. Yeah, but we shut it off, shut it off. Yeah, so but she, she was pure. Her purity, don't you think? Her purity of uh, vision. Mm -hmm. And I think she, she got that in the beginning from Peter. And I think she was truly, uh, tr truly nourished by, by the sacraments and scripture. And and by the by 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 her fidelity, there's so many broken people, mm -hmm. so so many people who are have had wretched experiences that are just beyond compare. And I think she 
she was absorbing all of that pain. You know, the hospitality sounds sounds like a nice idea and, and it is beautiful but it's exhausting and obviously the people who would come would would bring with them all their burdens and they are they were just they, they were beyond compare they were there were people who were mentally ill there were people who were so dysfunctional that it's it's amazing that the house could contain them all and, and I think Dorothy was somebody who just had this this tenderness and and she was somebody who just absorbed all this suffering herself all this agony all this brokenness and all this confusion that I I wonder how sometimes she could get up well, get up in the morning I, I think she had just such a loving heart and and I think all all her prayer just nourished this all her her living this life so intensely you know this she 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 lived it to the full she had this precarity this not knowing about tomorrow mm -hmm. and and she but she she just took took it literally and and that's so rare everything was of interest to her mm -hmm. she she had the inquiring mind to the end. Michael Boover also remembers Dorothy. I remember her saying to me, uh, start, start small, start right where you are. You don't need a big gathering to get going. Uh, you've got a, a pot, uh, soup, you've got, you know, it, uh, always start right at the, the bottom. And I, uh, and I heard Jack Cook recently speak about her in, in, in terms that were quite poetic, like a, a pine tree taking on more and more snow, weight of snow, and yet bearing up with all of that. And I think you see that in her, that she understood uh, a role to, and yet the role to carry it patiently and, and, and humbly. You know, a month before Dorothy died, I will never ever forget. I mean, I've, I've this is talked to Jim Loney about this, and it's, it's, the story's been published, but the paramedics, there was an ambulance outside uh, the house and uh, the paramedics had been called by someone and they went up and they got Dorothy and evidently there was something going on with her heart uh, and Dr. Moses wanted to come into the hospital and they strapped her into this gurney and I was downstairs near the office in the hallway um, looking up to the stairway and to see Dorothy Day strapped into a gurney was the most horrendous image of a woman who taught me what the freedom of faith is all about, who taught me what gospel freedom and Christ's freedom uh, meant. It was a heartbreaking picture. Um, I, I was stunned, you know. And she had a very stern, uh, look on her face. I mean, she was upset and, and angry, I think. Um, and as she was brought down the stairs in a seated position, the, the, the gurney was seated because she had trouble breathing because of the oxygen, so you'd never lie someone down. You're always... Um, 
And as she passed on the stairways going out to the ambulance, she looked directly at me and she said, I will be back soon, you know, in a very definitive, sharp way. And I said to her, I bet you will. <laughs> and a month later, um, she died in, in November. Um, never forget that day. Dorothy Day died on the 29th of November, 1980. Her writings and stories continued to inspire generations of Catholic workers and other radicals around the world. Rosalie Regal. She belongs to everyone. In that light, though, uh, Rosalie, I'd like to say, because we're here in Worcester, the hometown of Abby Hoffman, that he admired her, uh, that he had heard her speak, and that when he, when he did go to uh, uh, Dorothy's funeral, he was quoted, I believe, by the papers there at Time magazine as, this is the closest this Jewish boy is going to get to a, to a saint. But there's a kind of uh, holy reverence uh, and radical reverence that's tied to, to, to what uh, Abby was about and that Dorothy was about in her more uh, militant uh, parts and so forth. Michael Harank. As the Native Americans say, a gift isn't a gift until it's given away twice. And Dorothy gave us the gift of her faith. Um, for what to be given away again in the form of bread, in the form of soup, in the form of a picket sign, in the form of civil disobedience, in the form of friendship, in the form of solidarity, in the form of visiting the prisoners, all those different forms. I think she gave us that gift to pass on and really to inspire us to continue the work. Michael Boover. And Jack Cook kind of uh, uh, compared uh, Dorothy more to Emma Goldman, you know, seeing that tradition and that, that political tradition and, and seeing um, that whole resistance to authority and hierarchy and so forth as part of the piece. And I think she truly, you know, belongs to the communion of saints. For me, I think an important thing is that issue of sowing. She said, our job is to sow. Another generation will be reaping the harvest. I very much consider our generation, Donna and I, our generation to be the, a generation that really has also done some reaping, but is also still called to sowing because the needs have not changed in, in many ways. The need for the Catholic worker is, is very much present and still with us. And, uh, and, uh, and a bold witness is, is very much needed. But I think of us also in terms of, I think in my backyard that we, Bernie was talking about, very much uh, we're reaping what Dorothy and Peter have sown. And uh, it's a great blessing to have received what they have given, but also for us to be called to carry on the labors that have begun. Collecting these stories, getting history from the bottom up, um, collecting stories and interpretation from her many friends and the many people she worked with in the Catholic Worker Movement over 50 years has um, given us a rounded picture of Dorsey Day, has given us a picture of her idiosyncrasies and foibles as well as the tremendous strength, courage, and faith that she has. Dorothy's writings will be widely available. Thomas Cornell lives at the Peter Morin Catholic Worker Farm. The meaning of her life, the meaning of her message, cannot be obscured. Her writing is too clear for that. Her witness is too clear for that. 
She will continue to be a thorn in the side of church and state, but she will be the glory of the church too. <laughs> Most of these voices were recorded from 1998 to 2001. Look for Rosalie Regal's new book on Dorothy stories, published by Orbis. This program was narrated by Emily Aversa. We thank Public Radio Station KGLP in Gallup, New Mexico for special technical assistance, and we thank David Rovix for background music. This is Catholic Worker Community Radio, program number 10. You can hear more of this great background music at D-A-V-I-D-R-O-V-I-C-S dot com. And you can find out more about Catholic Worker Community Radio at angelfire.com slash folk slash capital A, capital M, capital M, capital O, capital N, Ammon.